Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? Kevin Robinson was born into modest beginnings in Detroit to parents who, like so many African-Americans, had migrated from the South in the 50s and 60s in search of opportunity and equal rights. The first in his family to go to university, he studied law and thanks, as he put it, to luck and a few smarts, rose to every level of being a public prosecutor in the U.S., local, regional, and national levels, before becoming general counsel of asset managers Guggenheim Investments. He came to Harvard's ALI program with a simple goal, to give forward and ensure that members of the community he came from could get the opportunity to walk in his footsteps. Kevin, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for Aviva. sharing your time and tale with us. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting and I'm looking forward to it. So as I always do, I like to start at the very beginning. So let's start. What and where and to whom were you born? I was born to Willie and Charlene Robinson, born in Detroit, Michigan. And I famously like to claim the Brewster Projects, which is one of the first housing projects in the United States. Unfortunately, like many housing projects of that time, that is to say I was born in 1959, it, it fell into somewhat of a disrepair later in its life. But nonetheless, it was for the limited time I was there, as I talked to my parents, it was a very community-oriented place. It has some famous folks that came from there, Diana Ross and Aretha Franklin being just two of them. So that's my claim to fame, so to speak. <laughs> so you grow up with their melodies in the hallways? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, my, my parents actually went to the church that Aretha Franklin, her father, preached at. And they remember her standing up on some milk crate and singing when she was in her single digits. So that's pretty cool. Fantastic. That's pretty yeah. cool. So how do you um, think that time influenced who you became? Yeah, I mean, my parents were definitely part of the great black migration from the South. They were both raised in Alabama, my father near Birmingham and my mother in a town called Florence, Alabama. And they were the prototypical participants. That is to say, they came up because the jobs were more plentiful. And in theory, at least, we know it not to be true today, but in theory, there was less racism, more open opportunities in the North than there was in the South. We had relatives in the North, in, in Detroit in particular, and so they settled there. My brother, who was six years older than me, was already there, and then I came along a little bit later. And so you were a family of two boys? Did you stay that uh, way, or did we, four We were, along? yeah. And my sister, she's six years younger than me, so I was the middle child for my first 18 years or so. Unfortunately, I lost my brother when I was 18, but from zero to 18, I, I probably manifested that middle child thing where they're paying attention to the older one, they're paying attention to the younger one. And so the middle one kind of, I was left to my own devices in a good way, in a very good way. 
So generally the culture, the family happy, united. Yeah. Sounds pretty calm. Yep. It was. It's like I say, I didn't know. For example, we were lower middle class. (laughs) I knew my dad worked extremely hard. As a matter of fact, he worked two jobs up until the time, about the middle part of the time that I was in college. And my mother worked up until the time that we lost my brother. So my brother and I in particular were latchkey kids. We had moved down to Illinois because there were greater economic opportunities for my parents down there. So my dad ended up working in a factory and my mother ended up working for the Veterans Administration. So, but this whole notion, at least as I look back on it nostalgically, of latchkey kids somehow suffering, that was not the case. It made us grow closer as a family, that is to say that my siblings and I, and it gave us a certain amount of independence that to this day, I think really kind of helped me being self-reliant and deciding what to do and trying to figure out how to do it. Yep, absolutely. So you lost a brother at 18. That sounds rather dire. How did you lose him? I imagine that completely reconfigured the entire family dynamic. It did. It did. He had joined the army and he was stationed in Hawaii and he died in a car accident. And this was A month after I had gone to college, I was the first one in our family to go to college. And so, so it was, you know, obviously you lose any one of your family members, but particularly a sibling, it definitely changed the dynamic. I can't even imagine now being a parent, what my parents actually went through emotionally. The the one thing I think it, well, one of the many things that it did to me, I truly offered to drop out of school and to remain home. They just were not having it. They just were not going to let me do that. And so what it ended up doing, I apologize for the garbage collection noise in the back. (laughs) What it ended up, again, reinforcing was this notion of self-reliance. But I think it also started kind of this, what I call the savior complex, where you basically are somewhat stoic. And you want to take care of those who are in your life and just basically not have them worry about you, but rather you take care of them. So the way that I could do that was being the first one in in college, trying to succeed in that respect. Make everything right for everyone. Exactly. By by carrying the pillar. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's speed then to the end of Q1, around 25. Who were you by then? I had initially thought of going to teach uh, secondary high school. And through one conversation that I had with a counselor while I was in college, I thought then about becoming a paralegal, not knowing really what a paralegal was. But he basically said... <laughs> a um, good TV series or two. Well, <laughs> he, he basically said, paralegal, why don't you consider law school? Which he might as well have said, why don't you go land on the moon? But in any event, came through law school, which was really a revelation for me experientially in terms of what the world was like, notwithstanding that it was the University of Iowa, so in the middle of of corn country, just really opened my eyes to what was out there for me. Uh, And part of the reason going to law school, it gave me optionality and that sort of thing. So by the time I graduated, I had read a book called Robert Kennedy and His Time written by Arthur Schlesinger. And that further opened up my view of the world and his family history and the politics and all the rest of that. So it was just 
things that I just started to see the crack in terms of what the world could offer and, and perhaps a little bit of what I could offer the world. Okay, so a huge opening up and eyesight just kind of starting to span the horizon. Okay, so so Q2, what did you do with that new eyesight? Yeah. What did, what did you do? What did you build? Where did you go? One of the things, it just what you prompted in me thinking was, I think I really intentionally decided to try to live a big life, not necessarily more valuable than anyone else who didn't intentionally make that decision, but just existentially wanting to have all of these experiences. And part of the challenge with that, when you come from where I came from, can, can, is... Can you just maybe develop, what did big mean? Just well, that, a that lot was, of everything? that was the thing, exactly. Yeah. So, so as I say, it opened up a crack for me, but but basically not having a typical, for the culture, African-American male growing up in a small town, lower middle class, there were some definite lanes that you would otherwise say, well, this is typical and this makes sense and it's valuable and all the rest of that. But I wanted to be in certain rooms that people coming from where I came from weren't in those rooms. The challenge was, or one of the challenges at least, is that I didn't have a mentor. I didn't know to seek out a mentor. And so it was somewhat circuitous that second quarter where I would go down a particular lane that seemed interesting or fascinating. I had the benefit of curiosity and I guess some competitiveness and maybe a little bit of smarts. And so throw that all into the bucket. I just had this desire and this hunger to strive for more. And so professionally, for the most part, my law degree took me to, to some of those rooms and a lot of those experiences. So from 25 to 50, I worked as a prosecutor on the state, local, and federal level. I then moved to California with, at the time, my girlfriend, who subsequently became my wife. We lived in L.A. for three years. And really, a lot of what my experience ended up being was dictated by my professional undertakings, whereby I was one of the few African-Americans in a particular room, in a particular job, in a particular experience. And for me, I'm sure if you were to put me on a couch somewhere, it would have a downward impact, but it really just opened my eyes to seek more, to be curious about more of the world. And so in that second quarter, the growth that I had, I'd like to think at least, Aviva, that it was more than what would be typical for where I came from. And in one thing in particular, for my 40th birthday, I chose to do an outward bound excursion, wherein really, really challenging physically, but would open up emotionally some of the things that you and I have spoken about a little bit. So that was also, you know, in addition to being married, in addition to our kids being born, personally, that was an amazing experience for me around a 10-day, brutally physical, but emotionally satisfying and educating experience. So Q2, really a time of pushing boundaries, keeping those horizons expanding, getting into all those rooms that were off limits and suddenly became home, I guess, to some extent. Yes, very well said. Anything that you would like to have done that didn't get done in that quarter? No, I mean, I, I use the joke, the sports metaphor, which I'm sure you'll just plug right into. There's this notion of, of in football, 
American football, sorry, where you outkick your coverage, meaning you kick the ball so far down the field that your teammates can't catch up to it. And I like to joke that I've been outkicking my coverage for years, meaning that I've exceeded, what is that quote, a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? My reach was pretty far. And I think I kind of ended up getting what I was seeking, which was all these experiences that I'm talking about. And to your point, pushing these boundaries. So come 50, you're a successful, married guy with a family, with brilliant career. How did you feel? Where were you? And how did you then set the, the next bar and the next chapter? Yeah, I think what I was starting to even think about then, I mentioned Bobby Kennedy, his famous speech about the ripples of hope and Teddy Roosevelt and the man in the arena, those famous quotes about kind of public service, in effect. And so during that time, certainly up until 50, I volunteered on a number of things, but it was primarily me focusing on my career. And I started to pivot to more of the public service uh, aspect of my life. I started off as a prosecutor, but then volunteerism became very, very important to both me and, and my wife. And we started to instill that in our kids as well. So that lane started opening itself up as I was, I don't know about successful, but certainly had accomplished some things professionally. And so that became, while I was in the periphery, it started to come into focus a little bit more for me. One point thinking about whether to run for office, whether it was local or, or regional or what have you, deciding against it, but certainly still focusing on the public arena. What can we do? Saint so Luke's what were you end. doing? What were some of the- I, I was on the plan commission. I was, I worked in a number of bar, uh, Illinois bar organizations, primarily pro bono, primarily, even though it wasn't as popularized back then, social impact type of organizations. We lived in a city, which we still do, Oak Park, Illinois, which is very progressive, very diverse, very progressive. I might mention my, my wife is white, our kids are biracial, which gave me a particular lens to look through as it relates to public service and certainly as it relates to social impact. And so it was a number of local and regional organizations that I joined and tried to, I could see back now, tried to basically have a social impact. So how old are you today? And then uh, why, I, why in this already like lane you were creating of giving back? Why did you decide to go back to school? So I turned 63 on April 13th. And I think really about two or three years ago, I'd been a general counsel for an asset management firm with a host of incredibly smart, incredibly creative, incredibly driven, and in some respects, unreasonable professionals. And we created these innovative investment structures. And I just really, in the last two to three years, as I was continuing to do some of this social impact activity, I said to myself, there were some New Year's Eves that I missed. There were some trips that I couldn't take. And my kids were young adults at the time. And it just dawned on me how much more money or prestige can I make for these other individuals and obviously have a little bit of that myself. 
And so whether it was going to be something like ALI or something else that was more time consuming and more fulfilling, in the last three or four years, I really started to look for something like that. And as I said, social impact was slowly moving from the periphery to directly in front of me. And then ALI presented itself. And did you look at different programs and said, this is the one for me, or did you just hear about this one and jump? I actually applied to the Notre Dame Inspired Leadership Initiative, which is right behind in terms of its length of existence, right behind Harvard, and was accepted in that program. And at some point thought that that might be a better fit for me because as you probably know, their focus is not on what you want to do, but who you want to be. And both spiritually, as I say, existentially, personally, that actually had a compelling pull for me. At the same time, I had applied to Harvard as well as as Notre Dame. And just the notion that Harvard was outward looking gave me that sense of, well, this is what I've been talking about most of my adult life. That is to say, getting out there in the world, as St. Ignatius says, setting the world on fire, doing something for those who are marginalized or less fortunate. And it was a more concrete approach to what I'd been talking about. So I made my apologies to Notre Dame and came here in in, uh, January. So interesting. You put your money with your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Enough self-reflection. Go and do it. (laughs) So we're halfway through this program as I interview you today. What's been the impact? It's actually been a revelation. I describe it to friends as both a revelation and a sprint, which appeals to me. That is to say, coming from where I came from professionally, you never had time to get it all done in the exact perfect way of getting it done. And so I don't mind somewhat back on my heels sometime or not having it done exactly perfectly. I'm not that type A type of person, but I think the struggle that I've had here, that is to say, first and foremost, this is Harvard. Oh my gosh. That, that, what does that, that mean? Is, so what does that what, mean for you? When well, you say I, that like that, what does that embody? I, look, a lower middle class <laughs> African-American kid from Zion, Illinois, who ends up going to Harvard, one of, if not the most prominent, one of the most prominent universities in the world, especially in light of the fact that how much focus and importance we as a family put on education, that's pretty amazing to end up here. And I don't say that in terms of, of bragging or, or being arrogant. I just think it's pretty amazing. And so from an opportunity perspective, this has been an amazing experience meeting people like you, meeting, meeting our other cohort members. Again, it continues to expand that aperture. It continues to expand that lens. Learning about the global South getting out of my U.S.-centric approach to life. All of those things have been amazing to me. I don't have any complaints. I really don't. Even the fact that you have to, or at least I've had to struggle a little bit to kind of find the answers to some of these questions that may seem obvious to other people. I think there's something in the struggle. I really do. Could it be better? Yes. But from my perspective, between meeting you folks and the thought leaders that are provided here and that struggle, it exceeds what I wanted. What was the impact on your kids? So I'm just curious of dad going oh my to God. 
As I say, we as a family are we really focused on education. My, my wife's an attorney, too. My oldest son is starting to get his MBA at, at Columbia this fall. All three of them said, Dad, this couldn't be more in your lane. Because keep in mind, I'm the one sending quotes to them every two or three days. I'm the one sending articles. This is an interesting read. Everybody should know about this, blah, blah, blah. So I think part of it is they're glad that since I stopped working, I have something else to occupy my time as opposed to pelting them with, with these <laughs> You're off their back. Is that exactly. the... <laughs> Exactly. But we have so summer you, coming up. So Yeah, we do indeed. <laughs> so you've got a long stretch yet of Q3. What, what do you dream of accomplishing? I think it's kind of a variation on the theme. My project is, because of my lived experience and professional experience, looking at financial education for marginalized individuals and communities, and particularly people of color. And I intentionally say financial education as opposed to financial literacy. Because the implication, at least in my mind, when you talk about financial literacy, is that the recipients of that initiative or that intervention are somehow illiterate. Not the case. What those recipients are, are victims of institutional racism and discrimination. And so there is an institutional barrier created that they need to be knowledgeable about in order to overcome the barrier. That's my project. But I also like this notion of different portfolios or different verticals within that. So in addition to that as a project goal, I'm also, as we all are, three or four boards as it stands right now. I also want to explore getting on a more broader philanthropic board or undertaking. So again, this is just Lee Pelton from the the Boston Foundation. Someone put me in touch with him. He and I are going to have that conversation. We did the case study on West Suburban United. David Ansel from Rush University basically created this coalition of minority organizations and professional organizations on the west side of Chicago, literally in the back, in my backyard. And because I have a friend who's on the board with, with David, he introduced me to David. David's going to introduce me around this summer to a number of these organizations. So to me, it's going to be more of the same, but hopefully more impactful of the kinds of things that I've been doing. Yep. You're getting into the room again, but just a yes, different kind yes, of room. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> Yes, uh, a room I never thought I'd be in, but I never thought I was going to be in some of these other ones as well. So seems to so be if working you look, out. If you look back and try and summarize each quarter, how would you metaphorize them? Give me an image or a word that captures each Q1, Q2, and so far Q3, or what you hope of all of Q3. Sure, yeah. I guess with the first quarter, I'd say... Special. I felt, I really felt special with the second quarter. Initially, probably lucky. I just happened to end up in places through serendipity and other means that kind of launched me into what I was doing there. Now, in the third quarter, that's interesting. I keep coming back to the word revelation or revelatory, I guess, would would be the way to describe that. Just from a regional to a worldwide look at issues and people and thoughts and ideas. And I hope to, in in the fourth quarter, continue that, but also I would say giving forward. I'd like to think I've done some of that, but I just cannot waste this opportunity. 
the ideas that, that people like yourself uh, provide and that I'm exposed to and get an opportunity to talk to you about, I have to give that forward to the next generation. Absolutely. And I'm sure you will. And I love the I love your general metaphor of this gift of sight, this aperture that just keeps broadening, that you want to gift to others, the, the right. ability to see both the obstacles and the opportunities and how to tap right. into them. Very mm-hmm. inspiring. Kevin, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries. <laughs>